this morning will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Let's now hear from the word of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a 1952 film titled Deadline USA has an amazing scene towards the end where Humphrey Bogart was in a press room aiming to run a news story that would bring havoc on a mob boss. And somehow the mob, got, mob boss got the number for the very newsroom where Humphrey Bogart was and called him and threatened his life, saying, if you run this story, and then he kept threatening and threatening to where the life would be over. And so what did Humphrey Bogart do? He messaged to the person who was running the newspaper to go ahead and print the presses. And while still on the phone, the mob boss heard the noise, and he said, what is that? What is that racket? And Humphrey Bogart famously said, that's the press, baby, the press. And there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. This scene comes to mind when the drama of our own text is explained. Now, I know that a lot of you are looking at me going, that guy was not around in 1952. And I wasn't. But your generation invented YouTube for me, so I was able to see it. Now, this scene comes to mind when we examine our text where it seems like things are at a point where they could go out of control or they could show a case where Jesus' life could have been ended or, or maybe the kingdom as it would have been advancing for a year now after Jesus had been tempted, would it run out of steam? The passage before this would show Jesus battling Satan, overcoming all sorts of temptations of provision, protection, and power. But in Matthew's gospel, our text picks up after an entire year has gone on. A lot has gone on in Jesus' own life that the gospel of Matthew doesn't speak to. Every story has a right and wrong perspective of this. So you could have what I think would be a wrong perspective that the kingdom might be running out of control. But a right perspective would see that Jesus just keeps being Jesus to everyone around him. There's nothing you can do to stop the Messiah for being who he is and doing what he came to do. The devil may have portrayed him as running out of options. Our text would even show that Jesus' own cousin, the forerunner of Jesus' own ministry, is now in jail, seemingly facing a death penalty. Did the devil win? We might run up to this text and wonder. Why was John in jail? Was Jesus seemingly on the run, going from places like Jer Jerusalem, now back to Galilee? Who would want to go back to Nazareth, leaving his home and moving to the West Coast? But our Spirit-inspired text speaks of something so different. Matthew shows that Jesus continues to be who he always was, on a mission 
to do the Father's very good will in order to save people from their sins. So in examining our text, in having this text be put in front of us, there are a couple of questions that I think just seep to the top here. And the first one we see right off the bat in verse 12 of chapter 4, is the kingdom out of control? Is God's very kingdom, just four chapters into this gospel, is it out of control? Well, according to John chapter 1, a year has passed since the wilderness temptation. Jesus was all over the place doing specific ministries. You, you might recall some of these if you've ever book, read the book, the Gospel of John, where Jesus had the miracle at Cana, at the Cana wedding, or cleansing the temple, or even telling Nicodemus that you must be born again in order to be saved. John shows Jesus' ministry as interspersing ministry in Judea, in the south and Galilee in the north, and then moving now to Capernaum in the eastern part of this advancing empire. John speaks spectacularly about Jesus is. So if we're reading the scriptures all together, we would see that, that the Messiah is being, tra- being portrayed as the one who is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or John says that he who comes after me, the straps of his sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie. Or he's said that Jesus must increase in order for John to decrease in his own ministry. A lot was happening in the year between Jesus's temptation. But shockingly to our passage, it seems like he might be on the run. It seems like his ministry in certain places is running out. You know, maybe, maybe people have caught up to what he was doing and just started rejecting him altogether. Matthew begins to place marks in the mind of us as readers about Jesus's messianic mission, beginning after John was imprisoned. Now, all of this is asking the question, why in the world was John the Baptist in prison? It seemed to be almost a footnote, maybe in your text, where John's imprisoned and Jesus starts going to these other places. Matthew's account begins his account with Jesus's ministry by John going to jail. It was at this point that Jesus made his next very strategic move in his advancing kingdom under the increasing threat of Satan's aim to bring him down. So if you're looking at this text like a graph as Jesus's influence is increasing, Satan's attempt to bring Jesus down is also increasing. Satan is never one to run away from a challenge. He'll soon be defeated, but he's always wanting to create havoc in the meantime. He's always wanting to take Jesus away from building momentum to go to the cross. You may remember last week where I said that Jesus' focus was always on the Father's will and always aimed at going to the very cross that would destroy him and take his life. And his next move would not only be strategically practical, but also it has a huge theological imperative for us to see. So don't think of Jesus just going from town to town, hoping to find this person or that person who might look to him, but also there's something bigger at play in what Jesus is doing. John was detained or put in prison by Herod Antipas at the palace of Machaerus, east of the Dead Sea. But why was John thrown in jail? Well, Herod had a half-brother whose name was Philip, and Philip was married to a lady named Herodias. And Herod wanted his half-brother's wife, and so he took her for himself. 
You would imagine the scandal that would run out in the newspapers where the king of this area took something that didn't belong to him. Not only that, he took his half-brother's wife. You talk about an awkward family Christmas. And John, just in understanding what the word meant in the Old Scripture, in the Old Testament Scripture, says, that's not right. And you shouldn't do that. Herod always feeling threatened, no matter who he was. All the Herods always felt threatened that anyone who would speak out against him took John and threw him in prison. Now you might think, well, this girl got caught up in the midst of all of this, but we would later see in, in Matthew chapter 14 where Herodias was not a nice player in this because she had a daughter who, when this daughter was asked by Herod to dance for him, and we mean that in all the negative, like you think of like dancing in the church, like all of the negative connotation that bring on. He wanted this daughter to dance for him and the mother would allow it in order for John to have his life taken. Because when something was asked of these people, what do you want to happen? She said that she wanted John the Baptist's life in his head on a platter. So what we see here is something intensely going against the very mission and ministry of Jesus by trying to knock down the the forerunner of Jesus's ministry in a kingdom up north. So if you look at one of the maps that might be in the back of your Bible, a kingdom that's up north in the land, Jesus was down south doing ministry. And when he heard that John the Baptist was in prison up north, he didn't flee further south. He didn't say, man, Herod has always been against me. Even Herod's dad was against me. He actually strategically and practically went north. We see the very boldness of Jesus's ministry at play here. We see the very boldness of Jesus's personality where he saw that not only evil was taking place, but there were people up there who were being impacted by evil all around them. And he went straight towards the fire. Jesus became more publicly active when his forerunner, John the Baptist, was put aside. The transition of our text going from the diminishing ministry of John to the increasing ministry of Jesus was intentional by Matthew's own written word where a full transition from John to Jesus was taking place. But for now, Matthew was showing that our attention should have been on Jesus' pedigree is now being focused on Jesus' full authority. His departure to a new place was not caused by fear, nor desire to self-pleasing, but of boldness for the very will of God to be above everything else in his own life. So is the kingdom of God out of control? No. It's actually all part of God's plan that this is all happening. Jesus is bold, not instead of John, not able to be bold for himself, but now in the place of John altogether. One commentator says, as the morning star is hidden, the sun shines out more brightly. And we see how this is taking place, uh, just a greater awareness for how the gospels in general are being written to us. So if you're a reader of the Bible, you might just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that'd be good. Maybe you're starting midway through the year to read through the, the New Testament, and you read those. But, but one cool feature about the Gospels is they actually overlap in a lot of places, and this is called the Synoptic Gospels, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke have many, many stories about the same stories, and you can almost read them as if they are linking up. Now, some of them appear different in the amount of words that are given to them, and some of them seem to be quoting from each other. Or you might think of 
uh, an example where Mark speaks of Jesus being tempted, the, the passage that we covered last week, where the passage I covered had a lot of language about Jesus being tempted. And then the book of, Ma- book of Mark just says, Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the desert. And you're kind of like, what else is there? And so what we see with this taking place is it not only allows us to understand different angles of who's being talked about here, a different awareness of what's being exposed to us as readers of the gospel text, but also we see that there is a clear message that's being portrayed by each of these gospel writers. They're not talking about Jesus differently, but they are emphasizing him uniquely. And the gospel of Matthew is all about showing us, the readers or the hearers, that Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the longed-for Messiah. That's why it quotes the Old Testament so much. But he is the needed Messiah on a global level, which is something that our passage talks about so explicitly with great clarity. Matthew begins playing out his organization actually in this very section. So the first couple of chapters were all about Jesus' identity. Who is he? You know, he's born a certain way. He came from a certain family. He was spoken about by people from afar, but now he's going into what Matthew organizes or interweaves into five large narratives or Jesus's dialogues known as the five major discourses of Jesus. And this begins in Jesus's infancy to his final week before his crucifixion. So a big takeaway here, is the kingdom out of control? No. This is all part of the plan, and Matthew brilliantly shows this to us. Jesus, in chapter 3, displayed himself as wanting God's will to be carried out more than anything else. That's how he approached the Jordan River. He was doing his Father's will. How? By placing himself in the Father's will. To the world, the story seems chaotic. Maybe if you were even mapping out where he was going and what he was doing, it might look like a mess. It may even seem backwards to what the world would normally do, but look at the fruit of what's happening here. And so our, right at the beginning, our text shows us that John was arrested and had been arrested. And so Jesus withdrew into Galilee. But where was he going and why? Well, there are practical gospel reasons for him going to these certain places, but also there are, there's great theological significance to this. So second, another big question that this text asks, not only is the kingdom out of control, but also who does the kingdom include if it's not out of control? Is he going to specific places in order for those specific people, or is he randomly throwing a dart at a map of the Middle East and going, I guess I'll go to Capernaum now? As the tetriarch of Galilee and Perea, Herod didn't have jurisdiction over where Jesus was. The locale of Jesus' baptism in wilderness were far away from his organization and his rule. But Jesus fearlessly marched into the heart of Herod's own territory when he heard of John's arrest. Now, Pharisees urged Jesus later to leave Galilee in order to escape arrest by Herod. but, But Jesus recalled and replied to them by saying that Herod, that fox, as they called him, or as he called him, and insisted that he would travel to Jerusalem only because it was necessary for him to die there, not to flee Herod. This guy wasn't scared of anyone. Now, we also have to look at this as Christians. Of course he's not scared of anyone. He's the very Lord himself. But also you got to remember his humanity. All of us might be in fear of someone who has been hunting us or their parents have been hunting us since our very birth. 
And so there would be every reason for him as just a man to go, if that guy's ruling up north, then I don't want to go there. But Jesus, in his boldness, but more than his boldness, this, this book isn't about like you should be strong and you should be mighty, but rather what is Jesus doing? He wants to place himself in the Father's will. To the world, that looks very weak, doesn't it? You're just doing what your dad wants you to do. But to Jesus, by doing the very will of the Father, actually brings great glory to everyone involved. Verse 12 says that he withdrew into Galilee, where he was from, meaning he intentionally went back a different direction to where he was raised. In verse 13, it says, after leaving Nazareth, so his hometown, it says, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Now, Capernaum, it's natural for Jesus to want to swing by his own place, but the text indicates he quickly moved to another. Capernaum is far more central of a town than Nazareth. So you can imagine him intentionally setting up his ministry where more people would come in and go out from that, have more of a commerce-type center. If you look at what is commonly called the book of Acts, which is actually the last book in your Bible. Many people think it's the book of Revelation, but there are a lot of colored maps behind that. If you look at that, if you're unfamiliar with maybe a map of that time, Capernaum, you have the upper sea in that territory. Capernaum, if you're looking at the map, is just to the left. Now, the size of it is not a significantly large sea. It's only 64 square miles in size. It's about actually the same same size as the city of Enid. So if you're at Walmart and you're looking out over the grain elevators, that'd be, that'd be almost what it's like to be in this sea and to look to the other side. This would be a natural place for evangelism to take place because of its centrality of people coming and going. In fact, several disciples of Jesus would actually come from Capernaum. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew himself would come from this area. Now, some reason to think that Nazareth was not a place for Jesus to set up shop and begin his own worldly ministry as the Messiah was because they rejected him. We see in Matthew chapter 13 where he says that he comes back to his own place and they don't even listen to their own. And so some people think that that's why he went to Capernaum, but there are just practical reasons for that of which I've just listed. But there's also this incredible and intense theological reason for these to take place. Our text actually answers why he went to Capernaum altogether in verses 13 through 14. It says, In leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. We see here why Jesus went to those specific places. Matthew stresses the knowledge of the ancient tribes of Zebulun, which would be where Nazareth is, and Naphtali, which would be where Capernaum is. And so he stresses that these would be places where people had taken residence and are taking residence in order to prepare for the prophecy of verse 15, which is taken from Isaiah, to be fully played out. Now, the importance of these specific places are shown in just their mere repetition. So if you go back to English or grammar classes, anytime something is repeated, anytime something is repeated, it means that it's really important, right? And so here we have Galilee being repeated in verse 12 and 15, or by the sea or toward the sea in verses 13 and 15, or Zebulun 
and Naphtali being shown in verses 13 through 15. Matthew is stressing these words, one in his own word, but in another in taking them from the book of Isaiah to pique your interest into Jesus's movement. By just these seeping to the top, you might be reading along very fast and go, wait a minute, he just repeated something. What is this talking about? Here he's stressing a further fulfillment text that takes place in Matthew. You might remember in different parts of Matthew before, and there will be other parts in this, where where there are clear words that are being used to gain our interest, but not just so that we can look and marvel at what's being happening here, but also so that we can think back and remember that what's happening here was something that was being prophesied about earlier. The words in our text that say might be fulfilled actually quotes Isaiah, or later on would quote Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And what Matthew is doing here is stressing the divine providence of every inkling and every ounce of effort that Jesus is giving is under the careful consideration and providence of God. Jesus doesn't just show up into these random towns, but he shows up in an amazingly precise way. I remember seeing a book when I was like 12 years old uh, at Mardell, and the book was called, What's God's Plan B? And I remember looking at it, and my dad said, that's not a thing. There's no plan B for God. There's never been a plan B. Nothing has ever run out. And then, and then God the Father goes, oh, uh, well, if that's not going to work out, then we'll try this option. And since I'm sovereign and controlling of all things, then it can really work this time. All the things that are happening in this text, have been guided by the Father. One commentator said that Jesus doesn't just show up and save the day. He does save the day, but does so by reliving the life of God's covenant people. Amazing how all of these actions that Jesus took are just showing that he is living in the will of the Father. And for us, just a quick application for us, is are there areas in our life where we are not even aiming to live in the will of the Father? Or are we on a major trajectory altogether that we know is outside of God's desire, outside of his will? What is the will of Jesus? What is the path of Jesus? I don't know if you've ever read um, ancient church history creeds, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedon Creed, those kind of things. What's, what's amazing about those creeds is they, they show two major events in the son's life, his incarnation and his death. And you think about that, that leaves out like 33 years, right? And there's only one word that's ever described as Jesus's life hanging between these two chads of his incarnation and his death. And that one word is suffering. Now, a lot of people want to overemphasize Jesus's life by intentionally de-emphasizing his miraculous birth and his supernatural death and what that means because they just want Jesus to be a normal guy. They just want Jesus to be an example for you to me. We should only concern ourselves with with words that Jesus says and not worry about other parts of the scriptures. And and at first that kind of sounds, oh, that's true. We should concern ourselves. But we've got to remember these two major events and what's hanging in the middle, but a suffering Savior. His whole intentionality was never his own glory, but the glory of the Father and by placing himself in the will of the Father altogether. His ministry is always going to look like a stumbling block to the world, right? Why would he go to this town? Why would he do these things? Why is he doing all these things? 
The biblical answer is because of the Father's will. But the worldly answer would be because that guy's nuts, right? So Isaiah 9 is where this selected verse comes from. It's just before that in Isaiah 8 that a prophecy would talk about the coming judgment of God's people and a promise of a future deliverer who, chapter 9 will say, will come as a child born who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But just before those titles, it specifically talks about where this Messiah will come from. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali were seen together in the northern part of Galilee, and they were this allotted group of people in this specific area of land that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. Now, 2 Kings chapter 15 says that Zebulon and Naphtali were deported by the Assyrians, which Isaiah 8 describes their judgment. But from their land, it says, will come the very Messiah who would save them by the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan, these emphases in this text are showcasing that it was not only geological descriptors that Isaiah was writing about and Matthew was later quoting, but these were often also commonly used terms in Jesus' time during Rome's expansion. The Roman road, as they would now be under the occupancy of, the Roman road was not only commercial, but would have also brought in countless amounts of Gentiles. To the area. This is significant because uh, a Matthean theme is not only an aim at what Jewish people need to know about the Messiah, but also what the kingdom would include when the Messiah would come. So who is the kingdom involved? Or who is involved in the very kingdom? Who is the kingdom after? Well, if it's from this text, and if it's from this region, there's always this Matthean intent intent of showcasing it's actually for everyone. The gospel keeps everyone involved in its reach. This is significant to us. There are practical significant cases of this by including all people. Matthew is showcasing Jesus emerging as an authoritative Messiah in step with the will of God, but also showing that Jesus is a global savior and the nations needed him desperately. You think of all the ways that the world divides us. You think of all the ways your very news feed divides you. You think of maybe even this week versus two months ago. And think just two months ago, the biggest topic was COVID. And now what are the biggest topics? Remember five months ago when we were about to embark on World War III? But now what are the things that unite us and divide us? The scriptures are clear. The one thing that actually unites all of us is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The, the one thing that divides us is actually the only thing that divides us from him. We are not worthy, we are not holy, we are not good, and he is. Yet in God's good grace, he sent his son, this Jesus, the Messiah, in order to unite us to him so that when the father would see us, he would see us as his son's own. So that there would no longer be war against mankind and God's holiness because of the redemption that Jesus purchased on the cross for us. So just in these tiny words, we can see that what Matthew was showcasing to us is that Jesus isn't randomly afoot, but is precisely bringing in people from around the world to hear his message. The people dwelling in darkness is such a haunting and sweet phrase because it's truly the testimony of everyone who is outside of the love of God. There are people 
dwelling in darkness. But what does the text say? What is he quoting from Isaiah? Those people, when the Messiah shows up in their lives, those people have seen a great light. The people dwelling in darkness, as the text says, not only leans back on the Isaiah text's emphasis on Jewish people living in spiritual darkness, it also signifies the whole land is darkened by sin and turning from God. We might think of this in agricultural terms where there are just places on the earth where you can't grow anything, right? There's no good soil. There's no great weather for it. It'll never rain there. And people have just said, you can try, but it's not happening there. And that's kind of the same image that's being portrayed here. The people are dwelling in darkness. There's a whole cosmic shadow that is over them. The darkness of the land and people are expressive displays of their hearts and their hearts can only be healed by what the text says with a great light. The shift is obvious in tone in the text. Darkness pervades the area and from their spiritual depravity, a great life has dawned. One thing that Matthew has as a common motif is portraying Jesus as the light of the world. The gospel of John says that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness of men. Our Lord, one commentator said, our Lord count courts, not those who glory in their own light, but those who pine in their own darkness. He comes with heavenly life, not to those who boast in their own life and energy, but to those who are under condemnation and who feel the shades of death, shutting them out of life and hope. In God's grace, the light comes to the darkness, exposes sin in our own darkened hearts, and the, and the light summons us to himself for mercy to walk into the light. And friend, you just need to know if you are not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're here as a friend of someone or you just wandered in this morning, what, one thing the Bible says is clear is that you are not okay. And there's nothing you can do to make yourself okay. Only Jesus can heal you. Only Jesus is the light that can penetrate the darkness. Only Jesus is the one who can save you. There's no credit to your account that you can hope to put in, but only a substitution, your life for his. And he does this so kindly and with such great mercy. He, he calls the globe. Think of this, what this is talking about. He calls the world to himself. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, that you are not the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord. If you believe that he is the Savior, the Bible says that he'll save you. And so the invitation for them is the same invitation for you, to confess with your mouth and to believe with your heart that Jesus is the Lord. You can do so this morning. You can do so on the way home. You can do so right now. Turn from your darkness, turn from your sin, and believe in Jesus as the light. So we see that in this passage, is the kingdom out of control? No. Who does the kingdom include? Everyone who can hear. But then lastly, what does the, the kingdom demand? What does the kingdom demand? Matthew 4 verse 17 is a simple verse. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This simple, these simple words is great significance in language. From that time, this little phrase this phrase also occurs two other times in the book of Matthew that, that cause a great shift in the organization, 
you know, if you're looking at a play, this would be the end of scene one and the beginning of scene two. That's what chapter four, verse 17 is. It also occurs in chapter 16, verse 21, and chapter 26, verse 16, from that time, meaning that there is a, a new or a fresh intent of what Jesus is doing. And I think what, what Matthew is organizing this text to say is that on this fresh path of Jesus pursuing the very will of the Father is to preach and to disciple, and to showcase himself as the glorious Messiah. Matthew divided his gospel, I think, like I said several weeks ago, into three major sections. And going on from this and until chapter 16, we'll see the second major section. Matthew also divided the gospel into five major blocks of teaching, like I said before. And now some people think Some scholars think that these five major discourses were actually meant to correspond directly with the five books of Moses and to confirm that Jesus' identity is the new and better Moses. What was Moses doing on behalf of God for God's people? Delivering them out of bondage. What is Jesus going to truly do? Save God's people from their sins. But this is more than a turning point. This is more than just something that if you love English, and I would imagine just statistically like four of you do, it's, it's more than just, oh, that's a unique way to read Matthew. It's the actual message of this passage that should rise up to the top. His spirit regenerates the heart of his children. His call is for repentance. The message is simple. It's global. The Greek language has it as an imperative, not as a hope. It has it as a command, not as a desire. Jesus went out and preached repentance, the call by God to turn from our sins and to turn to the Son. Your separation, your waywardness, Jesus is saying, turn from that. And and Jesus, unlike anyone before himself, he didn't say, turn to God. He actually says, turn to me that he's the one that the Bible has been talking about as the delivered Messiah. And God makes it so that you can do this. God makes it so that all of our darkened, decayed, wretched hearts can turn from our wretchedness and to Jesus by regenerating our hearts by the power and the purifying effect of the Spirit's work so that children can recognize their sin and recognize their Savior, seeing him as beautiful and majestic, and holy, and amazing in all these ways, but also forgiving of their sins as they are on their path towards destruction. Jesus is many things symbolically in the scriptures. Poetically, we speak about him in different ways. We, we read of him in the Psalms, and we write other poems like hymns and spiritual songs about him. Theologically, we ascribe to him certain words, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, but spiritually we must turn to him with our whole hearts. It's one thing to know all the amazing ways that he was. The demons knew how great Jesus was. Satan knew how big of a task it would be to try to tempt him. But spiritually, you need to turn to him. You need to place your heart in his very hands. The reason for repentance is also in this text. He's not just going out and saying, repent, period, end of statement. But that for helps us to understand the why. Jesus is speaking to us because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Matthew is different than the other other three gospels in that it uses often the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. 
instead of the kingdom of God. Now, there are three reasons. I think I've said this before, but that was several months ago, and all of us have slept since then. There are, th- there are three common reasons of why people think Matthew used the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God. One, they're just interchangeable, right? You can just use them interchangeably, like how we might use Christ and Jesus. I don't think that's the case. I think Matthew was more careful than that. There's also a phrase called reverential circumlocution, meaning that, that Matthew is replacing God, the kingdom of God, with the kingdom of heaven because he doesn't want to offend Jewish readers of this because they would see the Son of God as actually blasphemous because there's only one God. And so, so basically just to kind of warm them up to the message of the book, he uses the kingdom of heaven as to not to detract them with the kingdom of God. I don't know if that's the case either. I think the third usage, the kingdom of heaven, there's this theme of heaven and earth throughout the Bible, or what's happening in the heavenlies versus what's happening here. There's a locational and a structural difference between the heavens and our own earth. And I think that's what Matthew is really trying to amazingly portray. Think about it. The kingdom of heaven is here, or the kingdom of heaven is coming, and he's near. Matthew, contrasting between two different realms, the heavenly and the earthly, stand for God on the one hand and humanity on the other. Heaven is commonly called the eternal abode of the righteous, and here he's present. So different in many ways we can't fathom, so Jesus gives us pictures of what the kingdom of heaven is. It's It's the poor who are valued in the kingdom of heaven. It's the worst who are freely forgiven. It's the small, faithful seed that actually produces the largest tree. How different is that than the kingdom of the earth? Like any kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has a king too. But this kingdom of heaven enters, in our gospel's case, into town riding on a donkey. Or this king comes to us through the womb of a virgin or The kingdom of heaven comes as a poor baby. They didn't even have the money to really pay sacrifice for him. So they had to use doves like only poor people would do. The kingdom of heaven comes as a servant, not as a warrior like they wanted him or as they thought they needed him to do. And we see in this passage that what Jesus is preaching ought to shock us. I don't know what it would sound like to hear Jesus preaching, but I know that instead of just thinking of what did he sound like or did he use screens or did he have a different kind of podium or would he even use a podium at all? Would he sit with people? Would he ask Socratic questions? Would he he do all different kinds of things? Would he do magic tricks in the middle of it to keep their attention? I don't know. It would be cool to see and one day we all will, right? We'll see him talk to us. But in the meantime, what his message says is way more important than anything else. He's turning the world upside down first through his life and then by his own death. And he brings this good news of repentance, which shocks us and seems alarming, but is actually so kind and so helpful. The gospel is the good news that our holy God did not abandon people because of their sin, but actually rescued them from themselves and from his wrath by himself becoming what man was. And by doing for man what man should have done, For himself, but couldn't survive it. He sent God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, in order to live like we should have lived and by dying the way that we should have died. But he rose from the grave so 
not only showcasing that he conquered death on our behalf, but as a promise that we too would be raised from the grave. And all of this is from our confession and our faith in him as our savior. All of this knowledge and awareness awakens the soul, the Bible says, to the reality that we are not what we should be and he is everything we need to be. And it causes us to turn from our sins and to repent from our sins and to give our lives over to Christ as our only hope and as our Savior. So, is the kingdom out of control? No. Who does the kingdom include? Amazingly, us. You know, think about that. And then what does the kingdom demand? Our life, but for his. In conclusion, there's a story of a new professor at a seminary who was sitting on the front row before his first chapel service where he would preach to the seminary, and he was sitting next to the president. He had just been newly minted as a tenured professor. He was brilliant and accomplished, and it was very custom for the the newest professor to always preach his his first sermon in front of the seminary chapel. But this guy was nervous, and there's no reason to doubt why he would be nervous, right? All of a sudden, you're preaching, but now you're preaching to people who really want to preach, and all they're going to do is like judge you for a terrible intro or a weird transitional phrase, and he's about to preach to them. And so kind of excitingly, but also sheepishly, he turns to the president as the, as the group is singing a song, and he says, brother, I'm going to go up there and preach with everything I've got, but if I'm ever in air, come up there and take me down. And the president just kind of says, like, gives a little nod and keeps singing. And after about 10 seconds... He turned to the professor and said, son, if you go up there and preach Christ's call for repentance, we'll be so distracted by Jesus that we won't even notice you at all. Jesus' sermons must have been amazing to hear. Must have been incredible to take in. But don't overlook the fact that people who were hearing this message were looking at the kingdom of heaven. They were looking at the very Messiah who they were waiting for for so long. They were so swept up in his message of him as a glorious Savior that those disciples kept their eyes on him all the way toward their death. All of those who are far off, the scriptures say, return to the Lord. Believe and trust in him for salvation and you will be saved. It's a message of truth. It's a message of trust. But it is a message of triumph too. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful in the majesty of your Son's work in life, but also as what your Scriptures testify to in His great work for us on the cross. We pray that we would always keep that in mind. We ask that you would give us life that always remembers your cross, that thinks nothing else of anything but of your Son's death and resurrection. We pray that this message would penetrate our hearts and change our lives. Would you make us more into his likeness? It's in these things and by his power and in his name that we pray. Amen.